Good morning, everyone. It is just after midnight here, Tuesday, October 27th. This is the 20th episode of our news roundup, going from the 18th to the 24th. Of course, it's been a few weeks since I've done one of these, you know, with uh, with everything I got going on right now. I can't be as consistent with this as I would like. Um, You know, I'll try and keep doing these every week, but, um, you know, I, I may be interrupted with that for a while. So I'll try and be consistent, but I can't make any promises right now. Of course, this is sponsored by Mission Essential Gear, your one-stop combat shop, home of the Thules, the tactical handbook for unit leaders, available at megearco.com and Amazon as well. And of course, you could find our main blog over at megearco.com. I just put out an article last week about the fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan. It's a little more detailed than the article I did for Fortress International. The one I did for Fortress was mainly focused about uh, sort of the historical aspects of what's going on between the two countries and mainly why they're fighting over Nagorno-Karabakh. And the one I did for our main blog is mostly focused on what is actually happening now. You know, uh, what are the casualties uh, how are drones being utilized, for example, stuff like that. So go ahead and check it out. Let me know what you think. Hope you guys enjoyed, of course. Also check out the Freelancers, which is a media and research collective dedicated to covering modern conflicts with a soft focus on foreign fighters. You can find them on Twitter at CBT Freelancers, Instagram at Conflict Freelancers, and their website at freelancersconflictblog.wordpress. Dot com. Also, check out Fortress International, a veteran-owned research and analysis firm based near Washington, D.C. You can find them on Twitter and Instagram at Fortress underscore I-N-T, and their website is FortressLLC.org. Again, I put out an article on Nagorno-Karabakh when the fighting started going on about a month ago, so if you haven't read that already, check it out. Let me know what you think. And with that being said, we'll get into it. Good morning, everyone. It is just after midnight here, Tuesday, October 27th. This is the 20th episode of our news roundup, going from the 18th to the 24th. Of course, it's been a few weeks since I've done one of these, you know, with uh, with everything I got going on right now. I can't be as consistent with this as I would like. Um, You know, I'll try and keep doing these every week, but, um, you know, I, I may be interrupted with that for a while so i'll try and be consistent but i can't make any promises right now of course this is sponsored by mission essential gear your one-stop combat shop home of the thules the tactical handbook for unit leaders available at megearco.com and amazon as well and of course you could find our main blog over at megearco.com i just put out an article last week about the fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan, it's a little more detailed than the article I did for Fortress International. The one I did for Fortress was mainly focused about uh, sort of the historical aspects of what's going on between the two countries and mainly why they're fighting over Nagorno-Karabakh. And the one I did for our main blog is 
mostly focused on what is actually happening now. You know, uh, what are the casualties? Uh, how are drones being utilized, for example? Stuff like that. So go ahead and check it out. Let me know what you think. Hope you guys enjoyed, of course. Also, check out the Freelancers, which is a media and research collective dedicated to covering modern conflicts with a soft focus on foreign fighters. You can find them on Twitter at CBT Freelancers, Instagram at Conflict Freelancers, and their website at freelancersconflictblog.wordpress.com. Also, check out Fortress International, a veteran-owned research and analysis firm based near Washington, D.C. You can find them on Twitter and Instagram at Fortress underscore I-N-T, and their website is FortressLLC.org. Again, I put out an article on Nagorno-Karabakh when the fighting started going on about a month ago, so if you haven't read that already, check it out. Let me know what you think. And with that being said, we'll get into it. Of course, we're going to start off with the uh, COVID-19 numbers and news. So the week ended out with 42 million cases, 1.15 million deaths, and 28 million recoveries worldwide. At this point, there are eight countries with over 1 million cases. The U.S., India, Brazil, Russia, France, Argentina, Spain, and Colombia in that order. There are also 31 countries with less than 1,000 cases. The number before that was 30, but the Solomon Islands recently reported four cases of the virus, which previously had none. There are 24 confirmed cases of reinfection worldwide. 23 of them have recovered so far. The U.S. has six. I'm sorry. The U.S. has three. India has six. The Netherlands has four. Qatar has four. Belgium, three. Hong Kong 1, Sweden 1, Spain 1, and Ecuador 1. Europe is currently undergoing a new surge in cases and deaths, leading three countries on the continent to shoot past 1 million cases, like I just said. As a result of this, new lockdown restrictions are being imposed in multiple countries, including, but not limited to, Austria, the United Kingdom, and Ireland. On the 18th, Palestinian chief negotiator Saeb Arakat was hospitalized after his condition worsened due to the virus. Ericot, who's 65 years old, has a weakened immune system due to a lung transplant he had undergone three years ago. He is currently the Secretary General of the Palestinian Liberation Organization and serves as an advisor to Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority. He has been Palestine's chief negotiator for over 25 years. The West Bank and Gaza Strip have both been hit hard by the virus, reporting over 58,500 cases and almost 500 deaths to this date. On the 19th, Chinese company Sinovac Biotech's vaccine candidate appears to be safe in providing protection against the virus, according to Brazilian research center Instituto Butanan. I'm sure I butchered that. The center said the vaccine proved to be safe after the application of two doses to 9,000 volunteers. However, more detailed data will not be released until all 15,000 of the tri- trials excuse me, volunteers have been tested. On the 20th, Chinese company Sinofan announced that it is setting up production lines to produce up to 1 billion doses of two separate vaccine candidates being tested by 50,000 people in phase three trials. 
Sinopharm's vaccines are being tested in 10 countries, including Egypt, Jordan, Argentina, and Peru. On the 22nd, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved Rendisivir to treat patients hospitalized for the virus. This is the first COVID-19 treatment to receive approval by the FDA. The drug had only been authorized for emergency use since May. And uh, I didn't get to cover it because everything I had going on. But of course, you know, Trump contracted the virus and he was treated with remdesivir in the hospital. And now he's since recovered. Also on the 22nd, Belgian Foreign Minister Sophie Vilmes was admitted into the ICU a week after testing positive for the virus. Wilmes was Belgium's prime minister from October 2019 until October 1st of this year as well. She is said to be in stable condition. On the 23rd, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson both resumed their phase three trials after being paused due to complications with some volunteers in the trials. And on the 24th, Polish president, sorry, Andrzej Duda tested positive for the virus. He's reportedly feeling well. So we'll see. Uh, sorry about that. I have no idea how to pronounce anything in Polish. So bear with me. And moving on to space. On the 20th, NASA's OSIRIS-REx probe landed and collected samples from the asteroid Bennu. The samples will return to Earth in 2023 to be studied. And once those samples are returned, it will be the largest sample brought to Earth since the Apollo missions. Moving on to Europe and France. On the 18th, an 11th person was detained in connection with the murder of French history teacher Samuel Paty. Paty, 47 years old, was killed on the 16th by an 18-year-old refugee from Chechnya who held Islamist beliefs. He killed Paty for showing a cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad in a freedom of expression class. Depictions of Muhammad are considered blasphemous in Islam. The suspect took to Facebook to brag about the murder and was soon after shot dead after a confrontation with police. The incident sparked outrage all over France and tens of thousands of people are turning out to protest, uh, notably in Paris, but really all over the country. Uh, the protest in Paris was attended by many politicians, including Prime Minister Jean Castet and Education Minister John Michael Blanquer. Sorry, I don't know how to pronounce French. And on the 20th, the French government ordered the closure of the Grand Mosque of Pétain for at least six months after the mosque Facebook page shared a video that supposedly incited hatred towards Samuel Paty. The move has caused outrage among Muslims all over the world, including officials of foreign governments like Turkish President Recep Erdogan. Moving on to Asia. In Vietnam on the 18th, a landslide caused by heavy rain hit a barracks of the People's Army of Vietnam, killing at least 14 soldiers and causing 11 others to go missing. The country is facing its worst floods in years, which, is killed, which have killed at least 70 people in recent weeks. This is Vietnam's largest military loss in peacetime. In Taiwan, on the 22nd, the U.S. State Department approved and notified Congress of a weapon sale worth $1.8 billion to Taiwan. This sale includes sensors, missiles, and artillery units. The former notification to Congress gives the body 30 days to approve the sale. This comes amid heightened tensions between Taiwan and China, 
However, Taiwanese officials did affirm that they are not in an arms race with China. Moving on to the Middle East and Afghanistan, the country sees another week of intense violence. On the 18th, Taliban fighters in the Saib district, Kunduz province, killed at least eight members of the Afghan security forces at a local checkpoint. The fighters were able to withdraw before reinforcements arrived. Separate attack in Gore province saw 12 killed and another 100 injured by a car bomb. Bomb appeared to be targeting a local police headquarters, but according to the provincial police chief, the effect on security forces was minimal. No group claimed responsibility for that attack. On the 20th, the governor of Zazi Madan province, Abdul Hai Zazi, and his bodyguard were shot dead on the way to Kabul. Zazi was just 34 years old, the youngest in eastern Afghanistan to serve as a governor, which he started doing at 29. He came from a family of servants, including his father, an Afghan national policeman who was killed in a suicide attack, and his five brothers who also serve in the AMP. No group claimed responsibility for that attack either. Also on the 20th, two bombings in the Madan Wadark province killed at least five and injured another nine. Again, no group claimed responsibility, and on the same day, at least 12 policemen, including the district chief, were killed when twin bombs exploded in the Kang district of Nimruz province. Both IEDs were set off after AMP vehicles drove over them. Again, no group claimed responsibility. And on the 21st, clashes with the Taliban killed 47 members of the Afghan security forces in Bararak district in Takar province, including the province's deputy police chief, Mohammed Dorandish. According to the head of Takar's public health department, 20 special forces soldiers and 17 of Takar's policemen are among the dead. According to the authorities, the Taliban also severed I'm sorry, the Taliban also sustained heavy losses, but no figures were given. And on the 22nd, officials with the government of Takar province claimed that an airstrike by the Afghan national government killed 12 civilians, 11 of them children. The central government disagrees, saying that its airstrike killed 12 Taliban fighters. However, according to doctors at a hospital near the strike, most of the victims that were brought in from that strike were children. On the 23rd, a Taliban attack on an Afghan National Army outpost in Nimruz province killed 20 soldiers. According to the governor of Kashra district, six others were taken prisoner. On the 24th, another attack by the Taliban in Nimruz province killed six members of the Afghan security forces and injured another two. On the same day, at least nine were killed and another wounded when two roadside bombs exploded in Ghazni province. The first bomb killed eight civilians when their vehicle rolled over the IED, and the second went off when it was struck by a vehicle carrying security forces personnel to the scene of the first IED. No group claimed responsibility for those attacks. And lastly, on the 24th as well, a suicide bombing at an education facility killed at least 24 and injured another 48 in Afghanistan's capital, Kabul. ISIS-K claimed responsibility for that attack. Moving on to Pakistan, on the 18th, tens of thousands took to the streets in the capital of Karachi to call for the resignation of Prime Minister Imran Khan, who 
they claim was installed by the military in a rigged election. The Pakistan Democratic Movement, formed last month by nine opposition parties, is spearheading the protest. The movement accuses Khan of censoring the media, cracking down on opposition, mishandling the economy, and misusing law enforcement. And in Iran, on the 22nd, the U.S. Treasury, Treasury excuse me, Department said it blacklisted Iran's ambassador to Iraq, Iraj Mashjedi. Mashjedi. I can't be getting that right. The department claims he was overseeing the training and support of Shia militias in Iraq, which have been responsible for attacks on coalition forces in the country all year. He is also accused of working closely with the Quds Force of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, whose former commander, Qasim Soleimani, was killed in Baghdad in the beginning of the year by a U.S. drone strike. And in Syria, a U.S. drone strike killed members of al-Qaeda in Idlib City, according to U.S. Central Command. According to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, 17 fighters, including 11, quote, leaders, were killed. Five civilians were also reportedly killed, per the SOHR. It's worth noting that the SOHR has been known to publish stories with fabricated or questionable evidence in the past. And with all that being said, we will take a quick break and we're back with Africa. And we're back with Africa. In Nigeria, the NSARS protests carry on throughout the week in the country. As of October 24th, 51 civilians, 11 policemen, and seven soldiers have been killed. That's according to BBC. On the 18th, the governor of Ashun State, Gboyega Oyatola, escaped an assassination attempt. While addressing a crowd, his position was attacked by men with rifles, machetes, and rocks. He escaped unharmed, however, some of his bodyguards were injured. The NSARS protest began on October 7th, referring to the Special Anti-Robbery Squad, a specialized unit of the Nigerian police. The unit was formed in 1992 to combat rampant crime in the country. However, it has been consistently accused of extrajudicial killings and targeting young people that appear to be wealthy, among other crimes. The unit was actually disbanded on the 11th as a result of the protests, but they have since grown to protest wider corruption in the justice and political systems. On the 20th, soldiers opened fire on protesters in the city of Lagos. According to witnesses quoted by the Premium Times, 12 were killed and at least 25 others were wounded. Some reports state that these soldiers built barricades in the area to prevent EMS services from reaching the site. And on the 21st, police opened fire on protest again, this time in the city of Lecky, killing at least 12, including the Amnesty International. And in Cameroon, on the 24th, a mass shooting at a school in Kumba killed at least six children and wounded another eight. The attack is believed to have been carried out by Ambazonian insurgents. Ambazonia is an unrecognized English-speaking state that, that declared independence from French-speaking Cameroon in 2017. Ever since that declaration, the two sides have fought a war for Ambazonia's independence, and the conflict has occasionally spilled over into other regions in Cameroon. 
In Sudan, on the 19th, the U.S. agreed to remove the country off the list of state sponsors of terrorism after Sudan agreed to pay 335 million U.S. dollars to the family of American victims of the 1998 embassy bombings in Africa and the attack on the USS Cole in 2000. Other key factors in the deal included the establishment of diplomatic relations between Sudan and Israel, which is to be coming soon, according to President Trump, and sovereign immunity guaranteed for Sudan in terms of future lawsuits by victims of terrorism relating to the country. It's important to note that Congress would have to approve the status of sovereign immunity, which has yet to be done. Sudanese Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdok thanked President Trump for his decision and is eagerly awaiting his official notification to Congress regarding the matter. And on the 23rd, Sudan and Israel agreed to establish diplomatic relations. Both nations said they will meet with a U.S. delegation in the coming weeks to discuss the deal. This could make Sudan the fifth Arab nation to recognize Israel and the third to do so in recent months after the UAE and Bahrain. According to President Donald Trump, five other Arab states are looking to make a similar deal. So I guess we'll see if that's true. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, on the 20th, gunmen stormed a jail in the city of Beni and freed more than 1,300 inmates, also attacking a military post that served as security for the jail. Beni's mayor blamed the Allied Democratic Forces, ADF, for the attack. The ADF, which has been covered on this podcast before, has been ramping up assaults in the DRC in recent months. After the incident, 20 inmates returned and two inmates were shot dead during the raid. The jail holds ADF fighters and local militiamen among its population, and according to authorities, about 100 inmates remained after the assault. In Libya on the 23rd, the UN mission for Libya announced that the warring factions have agreed to a, quote, permanent ceasefire in all areas of Libya. According to the UN envoy for Libya, Stephanie Turco-Williams, all foreign fighters must leave the country within three months. She didn't say what would happen if those foreign fighters didn't meet that deadline. Notably, Turkish-backed fighters of the Syrian National Army fight for the Government of National Accord, GNA, and Russian mercenaries of the Wagner Group fight for the Libyan National Army, LNA. The GNA and LNA have been locked in intense fighting since the surprise offensive by LNA leader Field Marshal Khalifa Haftar in April 2019. While the LNA initially made major gains in western Libya, the offensive was beaten back by the GNA, granting them the initiative and putting the LNA in a defensive posture. And we will finish it off here with the United States. On the 20th, two U.S. Air Force F-22 fighters assigned to NORAD intercepted two Russian Tu-95 strategic bombers in international airspace near Alaska. Russia routinely flies recon and bomber aircraft near Alaska, and the U.S. does the same near Russia. The Tu-95, which has a NATO reporting name, BEAR, has been in service since 1956 and is the only propeller-driven strategic bomber still in service in the world. It has a range of 15,000 kilometers and a wingspan of 50.1 meters, which is about 164 feet, and it is nuclear capable. And lastly, on the 24th, a U.S. Navy T-68 
Texan II trainer aircraft crashed into an Alabama neighborhood near the Gulf Coast, killing both pilots. Ensign Morgan Garrett of the U.S. Coast Guard from Waxhot, North Carolina, was identified as a student in the aircraft. Lieutenant Rhiannon Ross, 30 years old, U.S. Navy of Wixom, Michigan, was identified as the instructor. Ross was an instructor assigned to Training Squadron 2 based out of Florida, and Garrett had just graduated from the Coast Guard Academy back in May 2019. So obviously we're uh, praying for their families. You know, these type of incidents happen way too often, especially with naval aviation. Uh, speaking about both the Navy and the Marine Corps, this this type of stuff happens way too often. A few days before this, and a Navy F-15 had crashed in the Mojave Desert. Thankfully, that pilot was able to eject before the plane crashed, but uh, still, this is way too common. So something needs to be done. I don't know what, but this has been going on for way too long. But with that being said, that's all I got for you guys this week. I want to thank everyone for supporting this podcast. It really means a lot to me. You can find this podcast on your favorite apps, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Overcast, Radio Public, and Pocket Cast, wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate, all one word. You can find me on Instagram at Kirko408. And with that being said, we'll see you guys soon.